these psalms that God has given to us or the song book that we need for the rest of our lives in the drama in which we have been brought into and yet to know for sure that the victory lies in our Jehovah God. As we now turn in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to consider what brought all this drama into being and at least the the, the heavy, dark side of that drama, but it is not the end of the story for which we have great hope. Beginning at verse 1, now hear the word of the Lord, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam said, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, and more than all every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. and the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us, apart from which we would not know the way, we would not know your will. Lord, we are thankful for the mercies that you have given to us in showing the great love and the mercy and the grace that goes beyond all of our comprehension. And yet you have displayed it in a glorious fashion in the midst of a very dark world, against a very dark backdrop. As light has come into the world, and the darkness did not comprehend it, nor did it want it. And yet the light is so powerful, it drives the darkness out. And that light is our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this day that you would lift him up before our very eyes and that our hearts would be fixed upon him and the great glory that he reveals upon the earth through his perfect image as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to this truth and make it applicable to us that in this fallen world in which we live, we may have hope, we may not lose our faith, and we may not doubt the word of God. So strengthen us according to your will and sanctify us now in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When we think about heroes in the world, we tend to have um, a great appreciation for those who sacrificed a lot. Most common form of a hero that we tend to uh, remember are those war heroes that went against all kinds of odds with all forms of bravery. David was considered a hero even after his face-off with Goliath. One of the most significant wars that we have had in our past few generations, and some would claim in the entirety of the history of the human race, was World War II, when Nazi Germany, under the persuasive power of Adolf Hitler, invaded all of Europe and attempted to come the world power that would last for over a thousand years. In less than two years' time, between 1939 and 1941, Germany overran and took much of Europe, defeating and occupying Poland in 1939, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France, all in 1940, and Yugoslavia and Greece in 1941. There was a little island called the Great Britain that still remained and who was the next target. And because this one little island 
was under the leadership of one named Winston Churchill, he not only survived against all odds, but under his leadership formed a national government and oversaw the British involvement in the Allied forces and the efforts against the Nazis, resulting in Germany's defeat in 1945. Regardless of what you think about Churchill, he was the man of the hour to deliver not only his island, but the rest of Europe in the way he consolidated the Allied forces and under his leadership. Some would consider him a great hero. Heroes always have great life stories. They're always intriguing and interesting to, to contemplate and to read and to study. And what makes a hero a hero is the adversity that he must overcome, adversity which seems impossible. And that's why we love heroes and stories of heroes, because it gives us hope. It lets us see that they have overcome adversity and it encourages us to do the same. Movies and documentaries and docudramas and books are made from real-life historical heroes. But when we think about history, history itself is really the story of God. And the Bible tells us of this story and what God is doing here. And we need to be reminded of this great story. Because we have been placed in part of this story for a very purpose. And we need to embrace that and know the hope that we have in Christ of our victory. The story of what God is doing here is revealed to us in the Bible. The Bible has revealed to us all that God is doing here and what his plan is. It shows us ultimately him. Among the platform of what is going on here in this world. The story of God in this historical world takes place in five acts. Act 1 is the one that we have considered for the last couple of weeks, Genesis 1 and 2. That act we would call creation. Act 2 begins here at the fall. And we see it going from Genesis 3 to perhaps up to Genesis 11, where we see the impact and the fallout of the fall and how it has touched all of creation through then the destruction of all of uh, the earth except for the two of every kind and the great flood and eight people upon the ark. And then as we see Noah coming back off the ark, there was a covenant then made with a man called Abram, and that begins Act 3. In Act 3, then God then makes a covenant and he promises to this Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, that he would be a father of many nations and all the earth would be blessed through him. And we find that in this subsequent historical frame of Acts 3, or the Act 3, that the nation of Israel would come on the scene and all of these things were, were showing forth what was about to come about in Act 4. Act 4 was the time in which Jesus comes upon the earth. Jesus, the Son of God, the last Adam, the only mediator between God and man, the one who would be the propitiatory sacrifice and the Passover lamb, that was revealed in Act 3. 
And what we see in Act 4 is the fulfillment of these promises and the triumph over evil. The light has come into the world and has dispelled the darkness. As Jesus dies for our sins and makes that atoning sacrifice and ascends out of the grave on the third day, being resurrected in bodily flesh and now ascends back on high into heaven and then sends his spirit out upon his church, we now enter into Act 5, in which we are still a part. Act 5 has been going on for the last 2,000 or so years. And we have been brought into this great story. And yet we've also been told the end. One of the climactic parts of this story was in Act 4. And we know that Christ has given a triumph over evil. And he's done that here upon the earth. In fulfillment through Abraham that all of the nations in his seed would be blessed. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the Lord still has a plan for this place that he began in Acts, Act 1. And as we see the creation now project, this temple project that God has established from the beginning, he gets it back on track, and it was always his plan to have it exactly unfold as it has. This unfinished drama is that which we are a part of the last act. We are living out in this remaining scene of Acts chapter or Act 5 until God brings it to its final conclusion when Christ comes back and we are resurrected and heaven comes down to earth and the two meet and this glorious, glorious, unfathomable um, state in which we will enter. We'll then make everything wrong here right and will be the glorious, restored, and elevated new heavens and new earth, the great paradise of creation one and two, but now glorified in all of its brilliance with God in our midst. The story that is before us is a story of a great hero, and that hero had to overcome impossible odds. In the face of the greatest adversity the human race has ever known. And the story is a story of what God is doing here in Jesus Christ. And as with any story, there is a great antagonist. Side of good and evil. A struggle of good against the evil. And a hero that shows up to rescue us all. The drama is not over, but the outcome has been revealed. And the test of our mettle will come in our faith as we have our constant trust in this hero who ever lives and will save us to the uttermost. Before us this morning begins the second act of this great drama of history that which we know of as the fall. As we consider the fall, this fall is significant in the sense that it is far more than what the eyes can behold. There are two rebellions going on, not just one. 
There is one rebellion in the heavenly invisible realm led by Satan, who is the leader of all of the fallen hosts of heaven, who has now entered into a serpent to entice humankind to rebel against the word of God and to bring the entire earthly creation under the curse. And that's the second rebellion that's going on against God and what he's doing here. And that's the earthly visible rebellion in this earthly visible realm led by Adam. Now this great rebellion in the heavenly invisible place and on the earthly visible place is the greatest cosmic battle that we would ever know, that we have ever heard, And no war here upon the earth will ever compare to this. This is the great war. But thankfully, we live in such a time that we know that the enemy has been defeated. This great cosmic battle would bring God's beautiful creation into the very struggle for her existence. This great cosmic battle includes heaven and earth. It includes the spiritual and the physical realms, the invisible and the visible, the angelic realm and the human realm, and the earth and all that is is in them. In verse 1, we are now introduced to the great antagonist. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than all of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And when we see this serpent... Now being introduced to us, we have to know our enemy and how our enemy operates. And here we see the introduction to it. This serpent is that which the scripture would later reveal to us. So the dragon in chapter 12 of Revelation was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's what's going on here. This is the antagonist, the great evil power behind all of the things that we see. When we are called to to wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and those dark forces, it is beyond the human but into the realm of the spiritual and the demonic that we are called to wrestle and war. It says here that the serpent was cunning. The word here is shrewd or crafty. Some believe that there are two Old Testament passages that reveal more of this cunning serpent or really who is behind this earthly creature, Satan himself. Some believe that there are two Old Testament passages of which I'm going to refer to, and if you would like to turn, one is in Isaiah 14, and the second one is in Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, we're hearing of the words about a king. In Ezekiel, we're reading of another king, the king of Tyre. But in these two earthly dominions or kings. There is something that is going on even that transcends the earthly realm and we see beyond the earthly power 
or let's say the man, and we're seeing something of the, the dark forces behind the man. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. See, that was the serpent's quest. He wanted to be God. Ezekiel 28, we see a bit more of a passage here that Many commentaries will refer to, again, through this king of Tyre, but the king of Tyre, there is a, another personality behind that. In verse 13, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. From these passages, we see that if they are speaking of this serpent of old, Satan himself, the personality and the power behind that serpent of old, we see one who wants to be God. He wants to have the power and the dominion. Pride fills his heart, and that which was created wanted to be as the creator. And what is revealed here is a drama that is going on in heaven itself, in this invisible realm. And when God casts Satan down to this earthly realm, he takes up his residence oftentimes in earthly creatures, like kings of Babylon or kings of Tyre, or in world-domineering war psychopaths like Adolf Hitler, sometimes serpents, and sometimes a herd of swine. Now the serpent, we don't know at this point. We often tend to view a serpent as we would view it today. A slithering snake. But at this point in time, the serpent was not that which has been cast down yet. But was an animal, one of those creatures in which Adam had named 
And now entering into this creature, perhaps of a very beautiful and attractive manner, a creature that might have had an attraction and a great beauty because of the personality itself, we are told. The cherub before he fell was of great splendor and beauty. There's a great attractiveness and a magnetism to this creature. And perhaps maybe this serpent was of such a nature as well. We do not know. But we do know that it is not the way that we picture him today after his curse. Now Satan calls to the woman, and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, this is the first conversation that took place about God. At least that we're privy to. And in verse 1, he then approaches through this creature that was certainly not frightful and has a conversation with the woman. And he brings God's word into question. His tactic is to undermine God himself by bringing doubt to his word. And so he says here, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has, really, has God really said that? And you have to understand the nature of the question. He's not only speaking to the woman here for all of these plural pronouns, you, are revealing a plurality that he's speaking to both man and woman. But what he does here is he brings doubt into the mind of the woman, particularly so, of the very word that God said. And he grossly over-exaggerates what God had prohibited by claiming that God did not allow them to eat of any of those trees in the garden. Now this is an attempt to create in the woman's mind that God is something that is contrary to who he really was. God is mean. He's oppressive. He's jealous and he's self-protective. And has God indeed said you can't eat of any of these trees? With this one question, the serpent has re-scripted God's character from the gracious, benevolent provider to a cruel oppressor. You know, questions are not sometimes inquisitory for knowledge, but are leading propositions to bring doubt into the minds of people. And that is Satan's tactic from the very get-go. Has God indeed said? And that's the way Satan works. He does with, with God. He does it with God's word. He does it with the likes of you and me who proclaim his word. 
Satan always tries to bring doubt to God's word and God's character. Bring doubt to his goodness. Bring doubt to his love. Bring doubt to his mercy. Bring doubt to the very good and benevolent attributes that God has so clearly shown to us. And in a particular situation in which we find ourselves, where the circumstances are dire and, and we have a, a, an oppressive spirit and, and we are unsure if God is with us, will God be good to me? Is He gracious? Will He deliver me from this? Doubt. has been his tactic of old and he continues to use it very effectively as we doubt what God has said is true or maybe it's true for somebody else but it is not true for me and so this is his maneuver. We see in verses 2 and 3 then the woman's response and she's going to be somewhat defensive in a certain sense. And so she then responds and says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of the garden, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest ye die. Now there's been a lot of commentary on the woman's response here because it is more than actually what God had commanded Adam back in Genesis chapter 2. God says, do not eat of the tree. And here woman says, we are not to eat of it nor even touch it. Now, we don't know really, even though a lot of commentators have made their speculation on that additional phrase. Did, did Adam teach his wife and try to preserve by hedging in the law? Don't eat of the tree. In fact, wife, just don't even get near the tree. Don't even touch the tree. Sometimes how we want to protect our children. We hedge the law. That is a dangerous thing, however, when we hedge the law. Because then we began making our own laws, even perhaps with good intention, in order to protect God's law. But when we do that, we create a whole other host of problems. Well, I'm not here to make any definitive answer to that, but we do know that this conversation was taking place, and then we see the serpent now responds. He was always a step ahead of the woman, for he set her up with a question that brought doubt. She then answers him in a way that he now can respond to, and then when he responds, he does it brazenly in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Dogmatic, brazen, assertive, emphatic, unquestionable. The serpent knew what God had said. In fact, that was true when the serpent also tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Satan was quoting scripture. And when Satan goes to tempt you, he knows what God has said. He can quote the scripture back better than you. He's had thousands of years to know this. It is critically important for you to know the Word of God and not to doubt what He has said. Know the Word of God and not what others say about the Word of God. Know the Word of God and trust it as His own expression of His character. 
But then to make it even more appealing, the serpent then brings an explanation. He makes this assertive dogmatic statement. Then in verse 5 he says, For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He provides his reason why God has prohibited the eaten, the, the forbidden fruit. Which then he's persuading the woman to take of this fruit in such a way that the explanation sounds reasonable, but he's bringing question on God and his own character. It is an outright lie, but it is further an attack on the character of God himself. And then in verses 6 and 7, here we see it's the big fall. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food the desire of the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes. And that was true of all of the other trees of the garden. It was good for food. That was the desire of the, of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes. There was the desire of the, of the eyes. And, but a tree to make desirable to make one wise. Ah, there it is. There's the root of the problem of the sin issue that's going on right there, is that she also wanted to be like God. That was what was proposed to her. The day you eat of it, you will be wise and you will be like God. And as she took of the fruit and ate, and then she gave it to her husband and he did eat, Instead of knowing good and evil, they became aware of their nakedness, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Interesting. And then they sew fig leaves for themselves to make coverings for themselves. When God created man and woman in his image, he created them naked and unashamed. Reflects back to Genesis 2.25 of a healthy relationship with God. There was no shame and nakedness before the fall. But now they attempted to cover their nakedness in the face of each other with fig leaves. And then they hid behind trees to hide themselves from God. And so now there was shame. There was a conscience that was now in the mind of man and woman. I don't have time for it here, and it's beyond the scope of our purpose, but clothing is a doctrine of shame before God and why modest dress is a spiritual principle that should never be marginalized. But then there's an accounting, moving on in verse 8 through 12. God's now going to reckon the situation. He's going to bring man into account, and when he goes into the garden to seek out man, he's going to call for man. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and says, Where are you, Adam? Where are you, mankind? Where are you, the head of all of the creative earthly realm in which I have created for you to take dominion over and to be my priest and to be my king, to be my image bearer. Where are you? And Adam 
comes out of hiding and has to confront the Lord. He says, I I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid and I was naked, so I hid myself. Folks, we can never hide from God. We can't hide anything we've ever done. He knows all. And he will bring man into an account. And this is what he's doing here. And know this, that God is always faithful to his word. Always faithful to his word. Whether that word be in the form of a promise or whether that word be in the form of a warning, he is now faithful to do what he said he was going to do. So God calls for Adam. Adam is responsible for all the mess now. He failed to lead his wife and protect her. He was right there. He failed as a priest of the garden and failed to protect the garden of God, failed to to maintain the holy character of the garden. He must now give an account. We see in verses 13 through 17 now the curse that comes down. The woman actually knew that she had been deceived. And we know in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it reflects back on this incident and says that's the very reason that a woman cannot have an authority over a man in the church, neither can she have an office in the church because of this very issue. She was deceived. Man was not deceived. First of all, see the curse of the serpent. And in the curse of the serpent, there was a tremendous amount of grace. Verse 14, he says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. Now, in this curse of the serpent, he's actually also cursing the very animal that he inhabited. Understand that when we do not war against flesh and blood, there is principalities and powers, but those principalities and powers are at work in this world in which we live. And they will be working through flesh, but the power behind them is well beyond their own ability. Verse 15, then he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his head and heal. We see in the the work here, in the the language of the pronouns, and we see what's going on. We've been referred to this as the very first gospel because in it is the seed of the woman revealed that he will defeat the serpent. This is where the great antithesis is now going to get played out on the stage of human history. The seed of the woman, ultimately fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ, and from the time of this particular situation forward, there's going to be a posterity of God's children through history, which would ultimately have their redemption through the triumph of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, likewise, would also have a spiritual posterity of the evil one. We see the very first of this in the battle 
that took place when Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. And it says he slew his brother Abel because Abel's works were righteous and Cain was of the wicked one. These two sides, good and evil, light and dark, would be the battle now through the rest of human history. But yet this was the plan of God from the very beginning. This was not something that God had overlooked when he first said, let there be light. This was not a mistake that happened on God's part. This was something that in his eternal wisdom and decree... He has decreed the fall. And in fact, before he decreed the fall, he already had plans of what he was going to do about it. He was going to bring forth the great glory of his light and majesty in the very midst of this dark adversity. And while woman went over to the dark side, God in his grace intervened and brought her back to his side and putting enmity between her and the serpent and between her seed and his. But the curse of the woman then upon this earthly life in which she then worked and lived and dwelt cursed the very thing that brought her the greatest joy and glory for her heavenly God. And the two things that brought her great joy was serving her husband and bearing forth children. And those are the two things that God will now curse. Now through pain of childbearing, she'll bring forth children. And secondly, her husband would be her head as he always was. But now she will have a desire for him. A desire that is for his headship. And the very beautiful relationship that woman and man have had were now is going to be a tension put between the two so that woman will want to assert her place in the wrongful aspect and there's going to be great tension in that relationship which was supposed to be beautiful, harmonious, and at peace and now there's going to be this tension. The curse for the man was, again, that which brought him greatest joy, and it would be several fold. It would include the earth and the curse of the ground. Now he's going to have to toil by the sweat of his brow to bring forth that which before he could simply pick off of the tree. But now he's going to have to labor for the very food that he puts on the table. But in addition to that, because of the curse of the woman, there's going to be a tension in the very beautiful relationship that he had with the woman who was created from him and for him. And now there's going to be tension there. God then takes his image that he had created on the sixth day, that he had given authority and dominion over all of the earthly realm, That he has as his own priest and king to reflect his glory throughout all of the world. And that has now been broken. Man has forsaken his very purpose and calling in rebelling against the word of God. The manner in which man was to live on the earth was in obedience to the word of God. Simply obeying the word of God would have protected the garden from the intruder. 
So in order to get man to disobey God, he brings doubt to the word that God had given man. But now man was no longer fit for the holy presence of God. And so God kicks him out of the garden. And as God kicks him out of the garden, he kicks Satan out of heaven, casts him down to the earth, and now here we have Satan who is the God of this age, and, and he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who has the control over these earthly dominions and powers and nations. That is, up until Act 4, when Jesus stormed into this abode and bound this strong man and reclaimed the earth for humanity under himself. But mankind was kicked out of the fellowship, out of the garden where he could walk in the cool of the day and enjoy the presence of God. He was kicked out of the temple. And now God then takes cherubim and he places them at the entry of the garden with flaming swords to protect the tree of life. Cherubim are considered the protectors of God's holiness. That was man's job here. And as they are now surrounding the throne of God, protecting the holiness of God, and such that now man in his fallen condition could not eat of the tree of life and so therefore be fixed in that fallen state, there was protection for man, and yet there was also chastening for man. Act 2, which has just begun, now sets the scene for what God is going to do to rescue fallen man from this world of chaos and sin and bring us back into the tabernacle temple garden. And the thing that we need to make note of here is that God still has great plans for his creation. And he's already won the most significant battle in all of history. And it does us no good to, to lament or to be uh, hopeless in the world of all of this rubbish going on out in the world in which we live. To protect the garden of God, we the church must obey the word of God and never bring it to doubt. That is going to be the power. When the whole thing got off track, when man questioned God and he disobeyed God, God was very gracious to show man and to get it all back on track because it really is about God. This is about God's glory. And the reason God has saved you and the reason he forgives you, it's for his name's sake. It is primarily for his glory. You happen to be a great beneficiary for which you need to give eternal thanks. But whatever God has a plan and store for you, it is a part of his great drama so that you will work for the presence of God and for the glory of God in whatever drama he has planned. And he will give you the victory. He's called you to obey his word. And the victory is certain. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word of God which was brought into doubt, it became very certain because the word 
himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was the tabernacle of God with men. The express image of God, the perfect image, shining all of his glorious light into this dark, dark place. And he declares the truth of God, and he is the hero of the story unto the praise and the glory of the Father. Jesus obeyed the word of God to the end, fulfilling what the last Adam failed to do. For it is by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But it is by this man's obedience that many were made righteous. And what he did is he came to restore the garden temple. And he restores the garden temple with the word of God. The two are inseparable. So now we have access to God. When we find the little microcosm of this world now set up in the tabernacle, there's going to be two additional features. And we're going to find that right at the entry of the garden or the temple or the tabernacle. As soon as we enter into the west gate now, we're going to come to an altar. And a little beyond the altar, between the altar and the holy place, the garden, is going to be this great brass sea, this water basin. Both of these pieces of furniture now symbolize exactly what Christ did in order to bring us back into the presence of God in the holy place, in the garden of Eden. But folks, we need to be encouraged that this world has faced worse circumstances than it has right now. This world has fallen into severe sin. There was a time in which God destroyed everything here except the two of every kind and eight people on an ark. But he has never abandoned his creation project here upon the earth. And he is not going to do that now. Against all odds, against impossible odds, against all ability that man could ever make, this sphere is the realm in which God loves to work against those odds. And it is against those human odds and against all of those impossibilities for man that God's glory shines the brightest in the midst of the darkness. Because it is in darkness that the showcase of his light shines the brightest. And folks, he's decreed all of this from the beginning. This was not a big whoops in the plan of God. And neither is anything that is ever going on in your life, both now or tomorrow or the problems of yesterday or the great discouragements of life or the, 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 the things that overwhelm you in life or your health issues or your spiritual struggles or your financial challenges. Life has many problems. And Christians are not immune to the deepest and most difficult of them. But God, by His grace and His mercy, gives you the power and the strength because He has given you a champion to save you from them all. We have to trust Jesus in life and trust Him in death because death 
of this life is not the end of the story. You have 70 years and perhaps 80 for reason of strength to live your life for the glory of God. Each one of you have a particular lot in life that he has given to you. He's assigned it specifically to you. And he is testing you. And as you are faithful to obey his word in the lot that he has given to you, then his glory will come forth in a radiant splendor, the likes of which you could never create. And as you respond in the power of the Holy Spirit and doing those things which in your flesh are impossible to do, then he is glorified and that is the purpose of it all. That is the joy of it all. That is the satisfaction of it all. So for better or for worse, for sickness and in health, right? We have these marriage vows to our Lord Jesus knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will take up our cause, but he will also lead us in a path of which we will have to call upon him and we will watch him work to save. And then we will rejoice and we will praise and the next trial will come and then we can say in this trial that is now upon us, Lord, deliver me, and I will yet praise your name. And Lord, I will sing your praises even now, knowing that in hope and in faith, because the risen Christ has given me the victory. These are the Psalms. This is what the Psalms teach us to pray, to sing, to embrace, to worship the Lord our God, even in the midst of great adversity, because we're on the winning side. The battle has been won upon the cross the victory has been revealed to us in the scriptures. We are in Act 5, and we know the conclusion of Act 5 is going to be a glorious thing of which the glory of Act 5's conclusion will never even could be compared to the infirmities and the sufferings that we compare in this life. It will just far outweigh everything to the place where light completely dispels the darkness. So with the character of Christ, we are called to raise up his banner against God's antagonist and fight the good fight of faith because Jesus says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in this very confused world and even in the church which does not have an appreciation oftentimes or sometimes in some places of what you're doing here upon the earth. We are often indoctrinated by the world's news and we get a spirit of despair about us. And oftentimes the message that's coming into our ears is, hath God said? Really? Is there going to be victory here? Is all this mess going to be cleaned up? This is impossible. And yet, Lord, we have the truth before us. We ask for your grace to trust it and to obey it 
so that your garden is protected and your church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth, may stand fast in these days and be the light that shines Christ out into this world and draws all men to himself. Lord, we ask that you would shore up your church in the truth. There are some that believe this world is getting worse and worse and there's no hope for it and until Christ comes back. But we know that the kingdom of God is growing and that Christ's resurrection has done something to the evil powers and that those powers now are bound. So Lord, we ask that in the struggles that we have against evil, the struggles that we have in our own flesh against the Spirit, that you would give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might be firm in what you've called us to do here upon the earth, the calling that we have, our election. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us in the remaining days that we have breath to serve you with all that is within us and to bless your holy name here upon the earth. We can bless you on the mountain and we can bless you in the valley of the shadow of death. We can bless you with friends and we can bless you in the presence of enemies with whom you prepare a table. Lord, we ask that you would steal in our spirit a great faith in what Christ has done that we may lay hold on his life and on his joy and on his rest and on his love and that you would bring forth a harvest of spiritual fruit in our lives giving us a joy in the victorious life that he has procured for us. That with the apostles of old, when we are persecuted, we can count it all joy and not all defeat. Lord, help us to stand strong in the battle and not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. That we can be good soldiers not distracted with the cares of this world, but be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, who has restored the image in us and who is restoring that to shine your glory into this world. So we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us to that end. May we be faithful to your word and to our Lord, who is the word, become flesh, in whose name we pray. Amen.